0: Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Susan Neiman is a philosopher and the director of the Einstein Forum in Germany. She's written several books, and I happened to come by one that is titled Why Grow Up? I found it intriguing, and so I invited her to discuss it with us. She graciously accepted to do so. So let's start by saying thank you for joining us. I'm very pleased. What propelled you to write this book? Why did you write it? A little history, please. Several
1: things, actually. One is that I was just increasingly annoyed by what in the States is called ageism now. I mean, there's actually a concept for it, and the idea that people's lives are over surely in their 60s, if not in their 40s already. Two personal things were happening to me. One is that I was about to turn 60 myself. Secondly, I have three children, and they were all in their 20s, and all of them going through different kinds of a rough time, so that I was taken back to how hard life actually was in my 20s. It, it all worked out in the end, but it's contrary to the myth that spread around, you know, enjoy your youth, it's all going to get worse. I actually found it the hardest time of my life. Thinking about what what it actually means to grow up, and it turns out that two of the philosophers who mean the very most to me, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Emmanuel Kant, who've influenced me in all kinds of ways, were the very first people to write about maturity and coming of age. And I was moved to try and put it together in a way that would make sense to people who were not philosophers. In fact, the funny thing is, although it's an incredibly interesting question, I don't actually know another philosopher since the 18th century who's written about it directly. So, first, I I was approached by Penguin. They wanted to do a series of philosophical topics for the general reader, and they said I could do whatever I wanted to. And I thought about it for a while, and I said, well, okay, Here's, here's something I'd be happy to work on for a year. And they said, but that's not a standard philosophical problem. And I said, well, it should be. In fact, in the 18th century, it was.
0: What I find very interesting about the book is that in all my years of dealing with mental health and all my training and shall we just clump it under all the material that I've read, I've never seen an approach to the problem of growing up, to the process of growing up, that you picked up from dealing with Kant and Rousseau and just pulling it all together. So that's one of the things that intrigued me about that. And it's one of the reasons that I'm really delighted that we're talking. So what is the purpose of growing up? You you spend a lot of time I'm trying to figure that out in the book. What's the purpose of growing up?
1: That's a a strange question in one sense because, of course, we all do get older unless the opposite is worse. It doesn't mean that we all grow up, of course. It's about being able to to think independently and to recognize, I believe, is the hardest thing in the world to recognize, that is, to realize the difference between the way the world is and the way the world ought to be, and to refuse to lose sight of either. People who only are focused on the way the world ought to be become dogmatic, if not Autocratic. People who only focus on the way the world is and call that realism tend to become cynical and unable to make changes in the way the world is. I view our task as moral human beings to move the world a little bit from the way it is towards the way that it ought to be. I think that's everyone's task. That is what growing up means to me.
0: Do we have to be taught to grow up?
1: Hmm, very good question. It's quite interesting because the first philosopher to of think about this was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Nobody ever put his entire program into practice, but he wrote his greatest book, Emile, is a sort of combination, the kind of manual for child rearing that we now get today. It's also a work of theology, it's a political work. But he described the education of one boy from infancy to adulthood. His prescription is the child does not need to be taught to grow up. We need basically to leave him alone. But that's not quite true because the child has a tutor who's actually with him twenty four seven and is arranging the world to work the way that it ought to work. I mean I think the answer- Answer to your question is a balance. I mean, the kind of program that Rousseau was proposing is a radical version of what we've come to learn in progressive education, from I don't know Montessori to Summerhill to all of the kinds of child-focused, let the child be educated according to her interests, follow what the children are naturally alive to the They want to explore it. Let them do that. Guide them gently. I mean, I suppose guide them gently is what I would say about being educated towards growing up. The problem is that we have so many messages in our culture today, certainly quite a lot in the 18th century, but from a slightly different direction. The time being quite authoritarian. Do what you're told. This is what you need to memorize. This is the path that you ought to take. The interesting thing about the 18th century and why this became a problem for them, that is the first time in history when the formal criteria of growing up were up for grabs. That is, until then, you basically did whatever your parents had done. Your life was circumscribed by theirs, basically. So there weren't a lot of decisions to make. Suddenly, when you start moving away from a very feudal sort of arrangement, which is still the case, actually, in, in certain kinds of indigenous cultures, but once you start moving away from it, there are questions and choices to make. Those were the kinds of problems that people like Kant and Rousseau were working about how, in the face of a fairly authoritarian culture, can you educate someone to be a independently thinking democratic citizen? Problems that we're facing today are different. The orders that we follow are more seductive and dangerous the messages that we get from constantly bombarded with being constantly bombarded with advertising the messages that we get from social media so glad that my own children came of age but they were teenagers before social media was a dominant force in teenage lives although they I guess use it now professionally, they're not addicted to it. I'm sure you know people now more and more describe it as an addiction, even people who quit Facebook and warn against it. But we're living in a culture where what isn't even questioned is the drive to constant consumption. I mean, it's interesting because some of the things that happen on Facebook, Luzelle was describing that is the fact that we're not taught to think about what we want, to think about what we think even, but only how we appear to other people. That's certainly a problem they were facing then and now. It's just gotten a lot Harder now.
0: Some of the issues with the social media is that so many experiences are more two-dimensional than three-dimensional. There's really not the person in front of us. We don't feel them. We don't smell them. We see them. We hear them. We share ideas, perhaps. But this connects to a comment that you made, which I think was very, very good. You said, blessed be the student who has many teachers and many different experiences, and we don't have those Experiences in social media, it's two-dimensional. Again, it's not
1: three-dimensional. I agree with you completely, and there's something entirely different about having real friends and having Facebook friends. No question about it. But I also think there's a phenomena that was interesting that Rousseau was very savvy about, it. and you see it when you see people going out into the streets, women made up very heavily, but men also extremely concentrated on the pose they want to project when they take their selfie. You see people in in the most awe-inspiring of places not having the experience of the place, but recording it so that they can present whatever they want to present towards the rest of the world. And you're right, part of it is that it's two-dimensional, but there's a sense in which it's not even one-dimensional. It's not even internally directed anymore. It's all directed towards what you are going to project of yourself. And that is, and you can see it literally in, in, you know, in these amazing places where people are only concerned with the right pose for their selfie.
0: I so agree with you. In the book, you spend a fair amount of time, and understandably so, talking, shall we say, about the curriculums of growing up and the the three that you refer to as work, travel, and education. Can you elaborate on
1: that? I'm not sure I call them curricular, those are stages that people should pass through in the process of growing up. Education is fairly obvious and at its best, it's a matter of exposing students to a wide variety of experiences. I mean, I think, you know, we're all born, we're born into families. There's a huge amount of things that we take for granted, even the best family. We have no choice but the music our parents put on the car radio, you know, when we're driving around. I happen to my kids a lot of Dylan. which they, there was a time when they complained about it. Now they, they're rather pleased that they uh, know certain things by heart that uh, others, other children didn't know. But we have no choice about where we live. We have no choice about the religion that our parents bring us up into. And my view of the process of growing up, whether it's education, travel, or work, is not you know, Growing up, the process of sifting through the things that your parents gave you and deciding which of them you would you're proud to inherit, and you think, you know, if I had been able to choose at that time, that's what I would have chosen for myself, and sifting through the things that you really don't want. I mean, even if you had wonderful parents, there are certain things that they taught you that were relevant 50 years ago and less relevant now. It seems to me that if you reject everything your parents taught you, I'm not sure that you've actually grown up. That's a reactive attitude that you see in adolescents all the time. On the other hand, if you simply take everything over, you've stayed in a kind of infantile stage. I also, by the way, think this is true of, of our relations to our country you know, I think, but that may be another subject. Education seems to me should expose you to things that you can't get at home, and it's one of the problems with most forms of homeschooling, though I have met exceptions to that, I must say. People who are extraordinarily, you know, benefited from homeschooling because most schools don't give this to you. But giving you different perspectives. I'm very, very big on, I think, classics are classic for a reason. I think the canon needs to be expanded, and it is being expanded. But if you haven't read the Bible or read the Odyssey, you're missing out on things that have influenced the world, certainly the Western world. For millennia, I'm much in favor of adding things from outside the Western canon, but not throwing away the Western canon, I just say. I think they, in addition to providing forms of knowledge and reflection, it's also a way of reminding you not to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> These are things that people have been talking about for millennia. And it's just very good for critical thinking, whatever you wind up doing in your life. One could talk about educational reform at great length. I didn't do so in the book. Some other people have done that quite well. I'm extraordinarily sad that the only experiences that I have had directly, and that's to other people, I didn't have it myself, I dropped out of school when I was very young. The only experiences that I have had of the kind of education I'd like to see are very expensive private schools. There's some of them that do it really well. Other than that, you are basically forced to praying that your child gets more than one good teacher who actually does care about enlightenment. At this point in time, it's, on the one hand, more crucial than ever that we entirely reform school systems. On the other hand, other things that are more dramatically immediate and dramatic
0: as far as where people need to put their political and social energy. You brought up the topic early on, and I think it was good that we all grew up. We all grew up physically, of course. But it sounds as if we are facing a new challenge. Sometimes that's a trite term, but sometimes it captures exactly what we're trying to say, that the world is so different. Our educational purposes and our commitment to enlightenment, I like the term, isn't there. This could become a very significant crisis for our communities in the next couple years if people are not growing up with enough independence, creativity, survivability, the ability to unmask ideas and really look into them.
1: The problem is, this is a long-range problem. Look at all the people who are unable to be critical of Fox News, just to mention the largest source of information. I'm not even thinking of, you know, Breitbart and Infowars and, and all of the just utterly lying, manipulative forms of information that have transformed our political life at the moment. I agree with you that it's, that it's a, a crisis, that one of the first things that needs to happen in education right now is for teachers to be able to help students who tend to throw up their hands now, this is as true in Europe by the way as it is in the States, and say, oh well, there's no way to know. It's We live in a post-truth age. There has to be a way to teach children how to deal with that. Unfortunately, a lot of teachers themselves aren't qualified to do that. My advice to people in in talking about that question is, you need to learn how to read several news sources. And yes, it takes time, but it absolutely has to be done, because the alternative is, is, is really to believe that there is absolutely no way to even approximate the truth. And that's a problem that we have now. I'm devoted to the much maligned enlightenment. I believe that everyone at least up to a certain point in their lives is educable, can learn how to think for herself, you know, can become an independently thinking democratic citizen. But we're past the point right now where a little bit of educational reform is going to do the trick because this administration has put into place structures that are increasingly making it Impossible to do that. So I guess my, you know, my immediate political concern is the 2018 elections making it possible to roll back some of the things that have, that seem to be happening every day, like killing net neutrality, for example, which is an absolute attack on free speech. An attack on free speech under the guise of this is not about speech, it's entertainment. really a problem. To go back to a couple of the other things, you asked about travel, I want to make it really clear. I think travel is absolutely a crucial part of education, and one of the problems with many American citizens is that they don't do it. Interestingly enough, the average American, who is well-traveled, did it in the service. As much as that helped certain people, uh, especially from working-class backgrounds, at least see that there was another world outside the United States, it obviously a very constrained form of travel. You don't learn a language. You rarely get off the base. And the kind of travel that I'm talking about is not even the classic year abroad. The problem with the classic year abroad is you also basically don't get off the base. You are with a group of students, usually in your own language. You're carted from place to place and rather coddled. So that actually you don't even have the chance to see the world that you might have if you were waitressing part-time at your local college community that in some ways serve as a better education than going abroad in a, in a program. But what I'm talking about, studying abroad can be valuable if it happens for a long time, but I think working abroad is the most important form of further education. It's possible for anybody to do today. That is one of the good things that the internet has brought us. Programs like WorkAway, where if you can save up enough money to buy a ticket, you can work for five or six hours a day basically anywhere in the world to spend the rest of the time genuinely learning that the world doesn't work. (laughs) always work the way it does in America. And I'll give you an example that's quite important to me. When Bernie Sanders last year was talking about parental leave, and which finally made it onto the agenda of both American political parties, I asked two American friends of mine, and they're exceptional American friends. They're exceptional Americans. Both of them have lived in more than one country and know more than one language. I asked Both of them separately. Well, it's nice that we're finally talking about a six-week parental leave policy. What do you think it is in, say, Germany, where I live most of the time? And one friend said two months. And the other friend said, well, Susan, since you're putting the question that way, I suppose you're thinking of something utopian like six months. And I said, no, it's 16 if both parents take the leave. 14 if only one does. And the fact that... That we follow news all the time about Beyonce's baby bump, love Beyonce, but we follow that kind of focus and know absolutely nothing about the way that parental leave is treated in other countries. means that we don't know what the possibilities are for change. We think it's basically right like for weather. It is utopian to assume that new parents should have the time off to raise and care for their children. So that's just one example of the sort of things that I think you learn if you spend a serious amount of time getting to know another culture. And I know for myself, I had the good fortune to spend eight years at Harvard. I got a very good education. The philosophy department at the time was a very good one, but I learned much more (laughs) By living in a foreign country and going somewhat native, not entirely, but somewhat. So that is the kind of travel that I'm talking about.
0: And it makes a lot of sense, and it really does add to the notion of what is necessary or at least optimal, one would hope, in going through all the psychological processes of growing up. We could talk for hours. Let me just refer people to the book, Why Grow Up? My guest is Susan Neiman. She, she is a philosopher and director of the Einstein Forum in Germany, and you've heard her talk about a multitude of things. Read her books, and you will find an even greater discussion of all these topics. Susan, thank Thank you so much for being with us. This has been a tease into a larger problem. But if we can get somebody to begin to think about it, then we've been successful. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure, Abby. Thank you.